All right, John 14, 6, and then we'll skip over to 1 John chapter 5. God's word says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 to 13 says this, this is he who came by water and blood. John answers who the he is here, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony or the truth in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Now this week, again, as I've mentioned already, we kick off a four-week series titled Cultural Lies, where we're going to examine uh, cultural phrases and concepts to Scripture. We're going to learn the, the fallacies within these claims and inform a Christian response to them. So here's the truth of the matter. Words matter, right? The words we use matter. And as people, Christians, who claim to hold to truth, right? Scripture talks a lot about truth. We should be examining the phrases and concepts that are prevalent in our culture and society and the Western way of thinking. We must think and respond, and this is important, and in love and gentleness, correct and guide those living in light of cultural lies, pointing them to the truth of Scripture. The first phrase we, we will analyze and address is captured in the statement, live your truth, which is closely associated with another statement, speak your truth, and could be summarized in two words. You hear people say this nowadays, this my truth, right? You've heard this two words, my truth. In researching this topic, I came across a, a series of articles from uh, the Human Resources Department, actually, at the, at the University of California, Merced, instructing their employees on how, to, how they can speak their truth, uh, which they defined as, and I'm quoting, being able to communicate your needs, ideas, boundaries, and even your convictions to others without wavering and in a way that other people can hear you. And I've read through that, and I'm like, okay, that seems like a fair assessment, seems like a fair thing to uphold. Uh, but I continued to read and research another article from the University of Kentucky actually gives further insight, and I think this is really interesting, kind of gets to the, the spirit of the age that we're looking at here, stating that, that your truth is a four-step process. This is what he says, a four-step process. Number one, accept who you are currently, okay? Realize your worth. Obviously, we would affirm that. We, we preach strongly as humans being the pinnacle, the peak of God's created order made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, so that's a good claim. Number three, this is where it gets interesting. Learn your personal truth. That's an interesting way of putting it. Number four, then live your truth. Quoting a definition from the website gotquestions.org, 
The overall message of live your truth is to not let society's norms and expectations influence and overwhelm you, end quote. Culture would say, maybe they would say it this way, be your authentic self. Have you heard that said that way? Be your authentic self. And in an effort to represent these claims fairly, we have to agree there's some semblance of truth to uh, these statements and helpfulness to this phrase. We, we should hold to who we are, our personality and expressions, ourselves resisting pressure to conform to, cer- to certain things. But this is where I'll say the, the positive aspects of, quote, live your truth end, because the overall application of this phrase or statement disregards the clear teachings of Holy Scripture. At its core, it is a claim that embodies what we'll call this morning as the spirit of the age. And every slogan that we work through in the next few weeks has that spirit of the age kind of flavor to it. And this brings us to our main idea for today. Our main idea is this, aim to combat the spirit of the age with this, with the spirit of truth. Aim to combat the spirit of the age with the spirit of truth. Again, the heart of what we are addressing here is is wisdom that's derived from a worldly way of thinking or the spirit of the age, which may contain hints of truth, but the overarching claim is false because we find, apart from the influence of, of God who embodies truth, the culture follows the spirit of the age. Look at the teachings of of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. He says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is important here. Following the course of this world, the spirit of this age, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We, we, we acknowledge in fairness there are elements of live your truth that may be helpful, but again, the overarching claim is, is misguided. I think Pastor John MacArthur responds to the heart of live your truth, which is actually derived from what we would call postmodern forms of thought and philosophy. He says this, quoting, the, the one essential, non-negotiable demand postmodernism makes of everyone, we are not to think we know any objective truth. Postmodernists often suggest that every opinion should be shown equal respect, and therefore on the surface, postmodernism seems driven by a broad-minded concern for harmony and tolerance. It all sounds very charitable and altruistic. What that word means is selfless and for the concerns of others' well-being. And so there's, there's a certain virtue within this, but MacArthur goes on about the danger of this viewpoint, again, picking up his quote, but what really underlies the postmodernist belief system, hear this, is an utter intolerance for every worldview that makes any universal truth claims, okay? And he ends his quote in this way, particularly biblical Christianity, okay? At Christians, I don't know if you know this, but we make some pretty exclusive, not pretty, we make exclusive truth claims, that are, that are universally applied. But why does the slogan, live your truth, fall short of being, well, you know what, true? We must ask the question. So here's the question we ask. What is truth? Truth is defined in this way. It's the body of real things, events, and facts. 
This is the working definition of truth. The, the key words here are the body of real, right? Real things. Truth is based in reality. It's kind of interesting that we even have to have this conversation. Unfortunately, we have, we've had to ab- attach this word. If you'll notice in MacArthur's definition, we have to attach objective to the word truth now in order to encompass what really used to be the definition of truth and should still be the definition of truth, which again is something that is based on and in reality. And to be clear, the Christian worldview, okay, we are Christians, we should hold to a Christian worldview, holds to objective truth. What is objective? Objective is a claim that depends on reality. A claim that depends on reality. We've already determined that truth can only be truth if it's dependent on reality. Now we may, we may disagree with it, but the claim can be answered true or false. But the live your truth mantra or slogan is not based in objectivity. Rather, it is subjective to the individual. It's relative to each person. Again, we call this subjective. So what is subjective? Subjective is a claim that depends on the person making the statement. Okay, bear with me here. We've, this is important stuff for us to understand. So, so instead of wrestling with if, if a truth claim is true or false, the response might be, say, to an objective truth claim of Christianity, uh, one of those claims would be the existence of God. Okay, that's a good example for us. A live your truth type of response would be, that's true to you, but not to me. In other words, God may exist for you, but he doesn't for me, which, if we're honest, is an incoherent argument. Subjective truth is, is malleable. It's, multiple. it's like Play-Doh com- compared to concrete, right? Concrete is objective. Play-Doh is subjective. It can be molded and moved around. And truth can't be molded and moved around. It, either, it, it is or it isn't. Sub- objective truth is concrete. Unfortunately, the, the meaning of truth is lost in the use of the word subjective prior to truth. We used to call this our opinion. (laughs) Sharing your opinion and viewpoints in the public square are good and healthy, right? I, I love a good, meaningful discussion with somebody sharing opinions. But we cannot claim, as Live Your Truth does, that both viewpoints, events, or facts are true for one individual and not for another. This is not the definition of truth, and it is counter to the Christian worldview. And I think Pastor John Piper, a pastor that I love, summarizes his concerns with this viewpoint in this way. He says, so my concern with this pervasive relativism, this postmodernism of our culture, is this. This is his concern. This is my concern. It hinders people's ability to grasp the biblical reality of God and sin and Christ and faith because it undermines our ability to believe in any objective reality, any truth. So then, what is the the Christian viewpoint on truth and, and how do we respond to the claim, live your truth? First, we affirm this reality. Truth is derived from God's word. Truth is derived from God's word. It comes from the word of God, what we have as the Bible, scriptures. Now, this may seem like a simple claim for me to make, right? Some of you actually might be thinking right now, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say those kind of things. But this isn't good enough in the world that we live in, is it? That's not a good enough response. 
That's, and, and in fact, someone might say, hey, that's your truth, but my truth is this. The Bible itself says this as a counter to the world's conclusion toward truth in Psalm 119, 160, a beautiful psalm centered on the, the beauty of God's word and his law. It says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules, hear this, endures forever. It goes on forever. It never changes. And so I want to share with you this morning, we, we call this an apologetic, okay? In Christianity, the study of apologetics is this. It's not saying I'm sorry for something, okay? It's, it's presenting evidence and reason to why we believe the things that we believe, okay? I want to tell you this morning, Christianity isn't just a blind faith. There is actually good, sufficient evidence to believe reasonably what we believe, along also with the spiritual power of God's Holy Spirit helping us to believe. There's sufficient reason to trust the Bible as the authoritative and true word of God. It is, Scripture says this, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, and it's truthful on, all, on each of the claims it asserts. Why? Aside from, again, the spiritual reasons why, the, the logical reasons for this assertion are rooted in evidence. We have, the, we have this in Scripture. We have the, the massive amount of manuscript evidence that grant us confidence in these things, in the continuance and consistency of Scripture, the Bible, through many years of transmission. The Bible has more manuscript copies closer to the original writings than any other trusted work of antiquity. What do I mean by antiquity? Old books is what I'm saying. And it's, it's not even close. And academically, we, we take those other works as consistent to their original writing and intent. We should do the same with the Bible. Again, the numbers aren't even close. The preservation of the biblical writings is actually quite mind-boggling. I would say this as a Christian, it's a miracle that we have the evidence that we have. Really, only through God's intervention, especially with the level of persecution that Christians have had throughout the centuries, could we really kind of absorb and, and, and realize how the Lord kept his word together through all these years. The scientific and, uh, and historical events it speaks to or highlights have also been found to be true. I, I remember in my, I believe it's back in my undergraduate studies, there, there's an instance that I remember reading about in the book of Daniel where a king is named that he, at that point he was not known of an extra biblical history, so history books. And for years, academic historians claim this to be a proof against scripture. It must not be true because we've never found evidence of this guy. You want to know what happened? There was an archaeological discovery that proved the existence of that king that had never been noted anywhere else, but they found uh, 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 evidence of his existence, and Scripture had already talked about him. Every time this happens, when, when the academics claim something to disprove Scripture, the Lord ends up revealing how it is true. Every time. Moreover, some of the specific claims Scripture makes can, can be put to a literary test for accuracy. According to, to expert Christian apologist William Lane Craig, the, the resurrection is one, of the, is one of those claims. Its historical accuracy follows this. Multiple independent resources. 
affirming this event, which include also, like, we include the gospel writings, the New Testament letters. They're consistent in the way they present it. But also, extra-biblically, so outside of Scripture, Josephus' writings, he was a, a Jewish historian who was not a Christian, notes the resurrection. And then as I was studying over the weekend, I also found that there was, there's evidence of a marble tablet inscription that, that contains, around that time period, an edict that came about, about 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus, that would relate to the stealing of bodies from tombs, that I think could be connected back to the Jewish claim that Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb, and I think it's further evidence of his resurrection. Finally, two other evidences noted are, the, are this, the principle of embarrassment and the principle of similarity. I'm going to explain what those are. Again, using the resurrection. We've, we've talked about this in the past here, if you've been a part of our church for a while. Women are, if you read through the resurrection accounts, women first discovered the empty tomb. This is documented in, in the gospel accounts. And we have to acknowledge in that, in that era of time, it was a patriarchal culture. What does that mean? It was very, man, men were important and highly esteemed and women were not. And in a, in a patriarchal culture, it would be far easier to lie and claim that maybe Peter or John or another man found the empty tomb, but the writers instead recorded what was true and accurate, even in the face of cultural shame and embarrassment. It's the principle of embarrassment. The last one is the principle of similarity. We see this in the continuity and progression of history through Israel to Jesus to the church. It follows the principle of similarity. It's, it's a logical progression of thought through the redemptive plan of God. For example, the law is given. Israel fails to uphold the law. Jesus comes, prophesied to come, not to do away with the law or rewrite it, but to fulfill it and ushers in redemption through faith in his adherence to the law. When we analyze the whole claim of the Bible together, it's not just, Jesus' life is not just an outlying event. Now, we have to acknowledge it's amazing, isn't it? But there's a, there's a similarity that runs through the whole of scriptures. This evidence, along with also as Christians, there's a spiritual reality to this. This isn't just a, a logical ascent that something has happened to us spiritually to help us to believe, to cause us to believe the truth of God's word. This evidence, along with the spiritual reality of God's spirit quickening our flesh, our sinful flesh, to trust the Bible have brought me, and I hope you, to the conclusion that we can trust Scripture as this, as the true Word of God. Jesus teaches us this about His Word. He teaches us that we are sanctified by the Word. What does that mean? We're made more like Him. We grow in Christ's likeness. We become more holy through reading and applying His Word to our lives. And this is the reason why, circling back around to the reasoning for this sermon series, we must test the claims of the culture, slogans like, live your truth, to the Word of God. So that we can know and understand if it is in fact a principle that we can live by. Is this really truthful? Jesus again says this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth in John 17, 17. And we know based on the test of truth that the claim of, quote, live your truth is not a slogan we can adhere to. Again, is, is there elements of truth within it? Yes, but the claim as a whole is to be disregarded. Moreover, we must remember the example of Jesus in all of this. 
The Bible teaches us that the word of God is not simply words on a page. It's embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what John's getting at at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and, well, there's an important word, truth. And so we know that that truth is derived from the Word of God, and also truth is this. Truth is confirmed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Truth is confirmed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is crucial to our claims. Jesus solidifies all these claims for us. We, here's the reason why. We cannot deny the historicity of Jesus. He was a man that walked on earth. All of history has been really reflects on that moment in time. It's how we count our years. As much as uh, the university wants to change that, it can't be denied or changed. Time changed when Jesus came. I mean, one may be able to, to struggle with the resurrection, I think foolishly. I think there's sufficient evidence for that. But the life and death of Jesus are irrefutable. He lived on earth and he died. We also know he resurrected. And so truth is confirmed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He showed us how to live. This is important, though. Because even even now, as we've been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, we're being sanctified by his word, he, he may have shown us how to live, but we fall short of that. We still struggle with sin. And the, and the beauty of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection is he, he didn't just show us how to live, but he came and lived for us. This is the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news about Jesus. We can be confident in the claims of the gospel because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are true. Moreover, John argues there, there are three witnesses, it's important to 1 John chapter 5, there's three witnesses that testify, that is, tell the truth about the matter, right? When you go to testify, you're telling the truth of what you've seen, what's occurred. 1 John 5, 7 to 9, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree, okay, they're not in disagreement. These three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. We have, we have the three, I'll just say, truth tellers here. There's three truth tellers in this scenario. And actually, if we read really detailed in 1 John chapter 5, there's a fourth if we count the testimony of God the Father, which we should. John notes the water and the blood and the Spirit. Now the water is pertaining to the baptism of Jesus. The baptism marked the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It revealed the special mission of Jesus. As Jesus was baptized in the water, he was testified. It was declared to be that he is the true Son of God. How do we know this? Through, through the testimony of the Spirit, the Spirit came down and fell upon him, and also the declaration of God the Father from the heavens when he said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
There is also the testimony of the blood of Jesus, really the marker of the end of his earthly mission. When Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross, amazing things happened. Here are some of the amazing things that happened. The earth shook. I've always, this isn't in my notes, but I've always been mind blown. In, in Matthew, it talks about people like raising from the dead when Jesus died. Remarkable things happened through the blood of Jesus. The weather changed. Darkness came over the land. The, the temple curtain was torn in a direction that some guy couldn't just sneak in there and do it. And a Gentile man declared this, that he must really be the son of God. But here's the truth. The testimony of his blood is rather meaningless if Jesus stayed dead. If we worshiped and listened to some guy who was still in the grave, our Bible means nothing. Our faith is meaningless. Paul says, of all people, we're most to be pitied. This may seem harsh, but we would be like any other religious following in the world. You know where Muhammad's at? He's in the grave. Buddha, he's in the grave. Every other religious system just tells you how to live, and their highest leader, he's dead. Our faith, though, Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, he bodily died, went into the grave by the power of the Spirit on the third day Jesus was raised to life again why is this important because it gives us assurance and confidence in his claims and his ministry Truth is confirmed in Jesus, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he is indeed God in the flesh, and we can trust his ministry, we can trust his work, we can trust his word. Why? Because it's true. It's not just some random subjective truth in history, it is the truth. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. We can trust his work. And I want to be very clear this morning to you. His work is this. This is the work of Christ. This is the Christian gospel. This is the beautiful good news that we hear. This is the good news that saves and sanctifies us, that transforms us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, that God in his love came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. God took on human flesh. He lived perfectly in our place in perfect obedience to the law of God and the will of God, even unto death on the cross. Nobody took his life. He laid it down of his own accord. Jesus died bodily, shedding his blood as the once and for all sacrifice for sin, and he went into the grave dead, but he didn't stay there because he is God, because the Spirit's power wouldn't let him stay dead. He was raised to life again and was witness again, getting to truth. How can we be confident in the resurrection 
because he was witnessed alive by thousands of people. None of the claims that try to refute the resurrection make any sense. We can be confident in the truth. Witnessed alive by thousands, first by his closest female followers, then the other disciples, then by many others. His tomb was found empty, and all of his followers, this, I believe this is the greatest body of evidence here, all of his followers who saw him resurrected were radically changed. And they, were, they believed it to be truth to the point that they were willing to give up their lives. It was not easy to be a Christian. It was not easy to worship Jesus as the Son of God. It was not easy to say that he had risen from the dead and they had witnessed him. But they held to what? The truth. Even in the face of persecution and death, nothing to gain in earthly life, only heavenly reward. This is the truth. And instead of living your truth, we can live in light of the truth of Jesus. We can be reconciled with God through the powerful work of Jesus and through faith in him, faith in his life, death, and resurrection. Trust in him, not in our own truth, our opinion, but in the truth of Jesus. Jesus does this. He frees us from the exhausting exercise of trying to live, quote-unquote, our truth and gives us one objective truth to believe in and live in light of. What is that? It's the gospel. It's the Christian gospel. And so what is our, our final takeaway, our application for this morning? Aim to live the truth, not your truth, dot, 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 your opinion. 1 John 5, 10 to 12 says this, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony, right? The witness of the truth in himself. I want to pause there. here's Here's a Christian doctrine. When we've been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, when we place our faith, trust, and confidence in the finished work of Jesus, God lives within you. We call this the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Not the Spirit of the age. The Spirit of truth. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the... This is good news. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life And this life is in his son. I love the simplicity of that statement. And then there's a dividing line. Whoever has the son has what? Life. Here's the warning. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. What's the offer to you this morning? It's life. Eternal life. Life in abundance, life where you don't have to keep searching around and seeking for truth because you have it right in front of you this morning. It's the truth of salvation and purpose through 
Jesus. The truth is freeing and life-giving. It frees us from the burden of trying to figure out the truth on our own. In the darkness, scrambling to find the way forward, stumbling in the dark, claiming my truth or your truth. Instead, the gospel frees us to believe and be transformed. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, you're a new creation in Christ. We're changed. And Jesus would say, be sanctified by the truth. And I want to end with this verse. I think it's beautiful and it's freeing to us. John 8, 32. Jesus says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom in Christ. This is derived from the trusted and true word of God, fully confirmed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These claims are trustworthy, true, freeing, and life-giving. Go forth now, family, in confidence of the truth, not your truth.